This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. So a little boy was uh, sitting with his dad in church, and he said to his dad, the pastor closed his hands. He said, what does it mean? What does it mean when the pastor puts his hands together like this and closes his eyes? And he said, well, it means his pastor is praying uh, to God. And he said, well, uh, the pastor raised his voice in the sermon, and he got quiet sometimes. He said, what does it mean when the pastor raises his voice or some speaks really softly? And he said, well, it means it's something that's really important for us to listen to. And the little boy said, what does it mean when the pastor takes off his watch and he puts it on the pulpit? And the dad said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so every once in a while, you know, I have a clock that's down here in the front that I really don't look at too often, but I see that it's ahead of time. So I, every few weeks, I need to come in and make an adjustment of the time so that way we, we all stay on schedule because it's important to me that you get to lunch on time. And so... You can eat lunch whenever, really. But so this, this clock needs to be, I'm not really recalibrating it, but I'm just adjusting it because it is a little bit fast, right? So, you, you know, in the old days when you had a watch, if you had to wind it, you had to maybe correct the time. Now everything, we don't even have to change our clocks for, uh, for daylight savings time because they're connected to our phones and that's our phone. That's our, we don't have to do that anymore. We have to think about technology saves us from having to move our clocks forward or backward. But it needs to be adjusted. We're recalibrating, right? And that's the idea of studying 1 Corinthians, is we're wanting to recalibrate our lives in accordance with the Word of God. So I've got 10.52 right now. So we're really, we're doing great on schedule. Everyone's going to get to lunch on time, unless this long, boring sermon goes way too long. So we're going to be in good shape, though. Um, But so we're recalibrating, right? What does that mean? It means to say, here's the Bible, and here's what it says to me. It helps me to understand my life. It reveals to me who God is and his character, and his goodness. And so as I study God's word, as I look more carefully at the person of Jesus and his life, then my life, increasing, in increasing measure, will take on the characteristics of Jesus. So this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, sometimes in, in your Bible, if you open it up to 1 Corinthians 10, sometimes the first verse of chapter 11 is connected to the last verse of uh, chapter 10, there, there Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so our life uh, should be an imitation of Jesus. And the way you imitate someone is to spend time with them. And you'll probably notice this, that you have someone in your life that like, kind of says funny jokes or has funny phrases. The person in our family that comes up with the funny phrases is Levi. He, he makes the jokes, and so pretty soon, these weird jokes that Levi makes in our family are the ones that we're all making together. So we're essentially imitating Levi because we live with him. So are we spending time with Jesus so that our lives can mirror and imitate Jesus' life? And in one sense, you are because you're here. You're listening to the Word of God, and I want to encourage you as you listen to what God's saying to you today that you want to mirror and imitate what Jesus is calling you to do in life. Because as we think about what he's done, then that moves us to a desire to, to live in the same way that he lived, right? And on the one hand, Jesus was, he was passionate, he was radical, he was like fiery and um, like was willing to upset everything. And so there's a sense in which that we should be that way as well, to be willing to take on injustice in the world with power and with passion. 
but he was also exceedingly patient and joyful and loving and kind. And so as we explore his character and as we listen to what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth about who Jesus is, then my hope and prayer is that that will become part of your life too. So let's now stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 14. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to read along with me. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for uh, this reminder of the truth of what, who you are, uh, the provision that you make for us, and the revelation of your character and goodness to the person of Christ and the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote to a community of people that he loved, and he wanted them to live in the ultimate fullness of who they were called to be. And so he gives them guidance, he gives them instruction, he challenges them with sometimes hard words, but he does it from a heart of compassion and of joy. And so I pray that as we're listening in on the conversation between Paul and his friends and brothers and sisters in Corinth, that God, you would allow us to hear what you're saying to us. And not just that we would learn something today, although that's important, but that we would then respond in obedience as a result of encountering you that we've spent time with you, we begin to imitate you. And it would make a difference in our life and in the lives of the people that we love and our community. So God, give us courage to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's mid-April, and uh, we are about a, a, a month away in our family from a high school graduation. And so anyone in the academic world or anyone who has a child or a grandchild knows that this is a season where we're getting near the end of the school year. And so that means a lot of a lot of things. It means field days and a lot of parties and a lot of activities. It seems like May has so many things going on and with the end of school. But one thing that everyone is really excited about at the end of school is exam week. Everyone's really excited, Dakota, about exam week. Are you excited? Savannah's not. You have two weeks. Oh, well, bless you, my child. So it's this end of the season, end of the year, where everything that you've been taught, whether you've learned it or not, must be on your mind and be reproduced, whether it's in the form of an essay or the solving of a math problem or the doing of a Latin a conjugation or uh, doing a recital. Often there are recitals in May where you have to play all the notes the way you've learned them or there are uh, finishing of football or excuse me, soccer seasons or whatever you're playing. There's this sense when there's this moment where you've got to demonstrate that you've mastered the material that you have been taught. And if you master, you can demonstrate it, you get an A and you get to go to the next grade. And if you don't, then you get in trouble with your parents. There's not a lot of holding back these days, but you get in trouble. You have uh, extra chores to do, or you get a big lecture, or whatever it is. You don't get to go out for ice cream, whatever it is. But it's this opportunity to demonstrate what you've learned. And so there's this sense of dread that often occurs uh, for students because, oh, I've got this big test. 
But what is really a test? It's an opportunity. It's to be able to say, think about all that I've learned in these last nine months. Since the beginning of the year, how much I've grown, how much I've matured, not only in my knowledge, but in my ability to take that knowledge and apply it to life, which is wisdom. And so for us, maybe if we're not in those school years or connected to someone closely with the school years, how is it that we are demonstrating that we are mastering what it is we are learning? Part of demonstrating that you've mastered what you learned is that you can do what you're called to do, is experiencing and demonstrating this mastery. In this chapter in Corinthians, chapter 10, Paul, I think, is teaching the Corinthians about exams. Now, it doesn't say the word exam anywhere in the text. He doesn't say final exams. He doesn't say get your number two pencil out. He doesn't say fill in A, B, C, or D. But he does use the word temptation. Temptation. What is temptation but a test of our faith? Isn't it an opportunity for us to demonstrate how it is we're mastering what God has been teaching us? When we are tempted, we are given an opportunity. It's an assessment of our character. It's an assessment of our maturity. Sometimes we think of temptation as as a trap that's going to ensnare us. But temptation is not a ruse that will catch us, but I think rather it's an opportunity to reveal what is true about our heart's desire. So uh, last a couple weeks ago, we were going over some math homework. Silas and Anna Karras were sitting at the kitchen table, and we were talking about math problems. And I just said, you know, why, why, why do we call them problems? Why don't we call them math opportunities? Uh, these are opportunities for us to demonstrate the appropriation of math that we have been given over the course of a week or two or three months, right? It's a math. Why do we have to be so negative all the time and call it a problem? Let's call them math opportunities. Well, in the same way, when we're faced with something that would draw us away from God, let's not look at it as a problem. Let's look at it as an opportunity to demonstrate that which we most enjoy and love, the person of Jesus who's revealed to us through the Word of God. This, friends, is an opportunity for us to demonstrate faith to demonstrate our love for God, to demonstrate that indeed, in increasing measure, we are being mastered by the Word of God. In this text, Paul gives a warning to the Corinthians. So if you flip back to 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 1, he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. So there Paul is talking about, and he's referring to that journey that the people of God, once they had been 
freed from slavery by God in the glorious and powerful way through the sea, their time in the wilderness before they got into the promised land. And he says there in verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That we might not desire evil as they did. So here Paul is establishing the connection of, uh, with the Corinthians and the historical people of God. Now this is a big deal because the historical people of God were the, the nation of Israel, the, the Jews, and the Corinthians, for the most part, even though there were Jews among them likely, were Greeks. But Paul is saying, you Corinthians are part of this family of God, this overarching story of God's people, that he wants to accomplish his glory through you. Now, you may remember, this has been a few weeks ago that we talked about this back in, in 1 Corinthians 9, that there was an issue of people in Corinth who were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Okay, and remember, why were they doing that? Well, from their culture, in order to please the gods, you would eat meat that had been sacrificed to a god, and that would bring you favor and blessing. But we know that the Corinthians that Paul is writing, to whom Paul is writing, are believers in Jesus. And Paul reminded them, look, you don't need to eat the meat that's sacrificed to the idols. In fact, when you do that, you're looking to the idol to give you some sense of security or hope or joy or meaning. And remember, you've been given hope and joy and meaning in the person of Jesus. So when you partake of the idol, or the meat sacrificed to the idol, you're actually disobeying God. You're actually uh, trying to cover your bases in a way that you don't need to. It's the, the lucky rabbit's foot of the day. Or I'm just going to pray to that saint who my Catholic friend says I need to pray to that saint to. Or I'm just going to uh, you know, do that little dance when my team is uh, getting ready to shoot free throws. If I do this way and this way, then he's going to hit the free throws in the game. Not that anyone would do that today at 2 o'clock during the Grizzlies game. Right? Nobody has any superstitions. Right? Baseball players are known for their superstitions. Right? You never touch the line when you walk onto the field. That's a bad thing. Right? You ever heard that? We have these superstitions because we want to cover our bases. Well, Paul is saying you don't have to cover your bases. And when you actually cover your bases in that way, you're not trusting in the God of the universe who's already saved you and claimed you and knows you. He's the one that is going to provide for you riches and joy and salvation. And so he said, listen, Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant of these lessons that we've learned from the Old Testament, because now we're learning from them because they're essentially our people too. This temptation to eat the meat sacrificed to idols was just to make sure they were pleasing the gods. And Paul is saying, this is a form of idolatry. Idolatry. And so he's connecting them with the people of God. He says they've been baptized into Moses. They ate the spiritual food and they drank the spiritual drink and the spiritual rock that was Christ. And if you notice in there, it says all, like four or five times, all, all did this. We ate of this food and we drank of this drink that is Christ. And because we have experienced Christ, we no longer need to cover our bases. To keep with the baseball analogy, Jesus hit a home run for us, right? He's covered all the bases. He's covered them all. And if I eat the food sacrificed to the idols, I'm demonstrating that I don't really totally fully trust in all that God has done for me. 
Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, Paul to the Corinthians, and us who are listening in on the conversation, that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul is warning them that even though they're on this journey with God, idolatry can overthrow them as well. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, oh, the things that the people in the Bible were struggling with, I don't struggle with. But then as I begin to study and to look at what they're facing, I realize, wow, this is also a reflection of my heart, of issues that I face. As I mentioned, Paul mentions all. Not only would it be all of the people of God, that would include us. We all struggle with these things. They may have enjoyed the blessing of God, but God was still not pleased with them because of their idolatrous actions. In fact, if you remember the story, most of the Israelites, the overwhelming majority of the Israelites who escaped Egypt from slavery and were delivered by God did not make it into the promised land. They didn't make it. And so Paul is sharing with the Corinthians and us, hey, be aware. These are examples for you to be encouraged to walk by faith. You see, everybody in the Corinthian church and in this room who can hear my voice is on a spiritual journey. And many of us have experienced baptism and we partake of the Lord's Supper. But simply because we enact these rituals and we partake of these sacraments doesn't mean that we are going to complete our journey into the promised land. That we receive eternal life. Simply being a member of a church doesn't guarantee you entrance into heaven. Simply walking forward when we take communion and participating in that doesn't mean that you really know God. Now, this is not to say that Paul is thinking that anyone can lose their salvation. He teaches in many places that those who have authentic, saving faith will never lose that salvation. But he also knows that not everyone who professes faith in Jesus and who partakes of the sacraments will persevere to the end and enter into the ultimate promised land. So there are these temptations that we face, these tests. And maybe one of those temptations is to be similar to the people of God is to think that, well, I am of the people of Israel. We're chosen by God. And so if I'm chosen by God, well, then I'm set. Maybe I'm from a Christian family. That means I'm good. My mom and dad were Christians, and so I'm living off their faith. I live in a Christian country. If you want to call it a Christian country. What makes it a Christian country? Is it a Christian country, or is it Christian as long as the people in the country reflect the values of Christ? I served in the church. Once we got that blower, I blew off the branches every morning before everyone came in. I made the coffee. I was an elder. I taught Sunday school. How many of those things make you right with God? Say zero, somebody. (laughs) Less than one. None of those things make us right with God. Those are all worthy endeavors. I love the people who blow off the leaves in the, on the thing. Do you ever notice there's no leaves when you get here because someone has faithfully blown off the leaves when you come to worship on Sunday morning. Thank you. Who did that today? Terry? Where's Terry? She's probably teaching something else right now. Where is she? Thank you for doing that. Amy, did you do it? Are you raising your hand? Okay. It's a worthwhile gift, but it doesn't make us right with God, and we know that, Right? We know that we're right with God, not because of what we've done, but because of what we believe. Because Jesus reveals 
faith to us and he invites us into his family. And because of that, then we teach and we lead and we serve and we blow off the leaves or whatever the, the meaningful task is of that day. It's never entrusting in my own good deeds. And so he says, these things took place as examples for us. So there's a tendency, I think, Paul, that's saying, is that don't trust in your family or your heritage. You have to trust in Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and to play. We must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for us for our instruction. So one temptation could be to trust in my family or to trust in my country. Another temptation is believing that sexual expression is going to fill me with the meaning that I long for. And look at these other examples that he gives to us, right? Um, some grumbled. What is grumbling? It's this complaining. This idea that if I just complain to the right person, they're going to they're gonna care about what's going on in me. And we all identify with this. Well, maybe you guys don't identify with this, but I know what it feels like to grumble. And they go, rasa, 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 rasa. you know, man, I just, if I could only get, if he would only, you know, if, if only this had that happened, that feeling of, man, if somebody else would just do something, boy, it's just that grumbling, bitter spirit that just can come and well up within us so easily. Or this idea that if I just express myself in the way that I really long for sexually, that that's going to give me the significance and the joy that I really, really need. Paul says, do not indulge in sexual immorality. 23,000 fell in one day. What does he mean? Well, in Numbers 25... We, we learn this about the people of God. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baals of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Sexual immorality leads to the worship of the gods of the age. Then it was the gods of the Moabites Today, it's the gods of self-indulgence. Some years ago, uh, there was a survey that was revealed among youth and teens, and they were asking them about what is and is not immoral. And 32% of youth and teens, according to this survey a few years ago, said that viewing pornography is, quote, usually or always wrong. 32% said usually or always wrong compared to 54% that said not recycling is usually or always wrong. So 32% said viewing pornography is usually or always wrong. 54% said not recycling is usually or always wrong. And here's the thing, friends. This survey came out in 2016, eight years ago. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I think that the number of people thinking pornography is usually or always long, wrong is probably going down because it's so pervasive in our culture. 
It's so accessible to us through the advent of the cell phone. You carry around a porno mag in your pocket if you have a cell phone. You really do. And not only that, but the culture in increasing measure is saying it's not a bad thing. That's a huge shift in where we are as a people. And what does it say in the Bible about how God brings judgment onto those who are engaging in sexual immorality? It says 23,000 were destroyed by the anger of the Lord. There's a consequence to that. Now, the consequences don't usually happen right away, but they eventually do. See, this, this God of sexual immorality that says, I am my sexual identity, and it's the most important thing about me, and so that means that I should be able to express it in any way I desire. Not how I was created. What is good, this attitude says, is that I find fulfillment in myself, that I get what I need. I experience pleasure, no matter if it's disconnected from relationship and covenant. But this temptation brings harm to individuals, to marriages, to families, and to cultures. So whether the temptation is to trust in your own standing as a, as a member of the Christian family or a Christian country, or the temptation is to give in to your own individual desires, either one of these things are a test. It's an opportunity to demonstrate what you love the most. What you love the most. Will you give in to that carnal desire to be proud of your, uh, your family standing in such a way that it diminishes other people? There's nothing wrong with being proud of who you are. I'm not saying that. But so proud that you can't receive and experience blessing from or with people who don't have the same family or heritage or standing. Or if you give in to your desires, that's the best way to find life and hope and joy. Or to give in to that temptation to grumble. When it rises up, you can just hear yourself talking and you're like, man, I really need to stop grumbling here. But you just do it anyway. That temptation just to spill it out. Or did you hear what he did? That gossip nature to go, let me just, let's just pray for so-and-so. Because you know what he did last night? Oh my gosh. That sense of Casting blame or putting it on someone else. All those temptations. Instead to say, you know what? I don't need to make myself feel better by harming someone else's reputation. I don't need to comfort my, salve my wounds by grumbling when I don't get what I want. I don't need to give in to this desire because I know that it's not going to ultimately be pleasing to me. I know that my prideful action to say my culture and my standing is the best culture is just an idol in my life. Because God is working through every person, every nation, every family. There are good and bad things in every culture. Things that reflect the glory of God, things that need to be corrected by the word of God. And listen to what Paul says. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Who's that warning to? Everybody. Be careful about what you're putting your hope and your faith in. Be vigilant. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. 
here's the thing, friends. Every single test that you faced, no matter where you are on that spectrum, no matter which struggle you have or any other struggle, someone has faced it before. And here's one of the things I think the enemy does is when we're facing a struggle, we're facing a temptation, we feel like we're the only one. And the enemy wants to wall us off and to isolate us so that we feel discouraged. You're like, I'm the only one going through this. What we need to do is to press in to a faithful friend and to say, here's what's going on in my life, and I'm really struggling with this. To share it with a loving community in appropriate ways to say, I need help with this. Someone who is a gospel-oriented person that can speak the words of hope into your life to say, don't forget that Jesus loves you. Don't forget that I'm with you in this. He's never going to leave you or forsake you, and I'm going to be with you. We need that friendship. We need that encouragement. And he says the solution is not to emphasize your faithfulness, but whose faithfulness? God's faithfulness. Not your willpower, not your strength, but God's power, because God is the one who provides the way of escape. He provides that in a community. He provides that with his word. He provides that with a message that helps us to remember that even in our temptation, God is with us. Even when we fail, even when we give into that temptation, God is still with us. And because he's with us, then the next time we face it, we have the courage to respond in obedience. Because he says, flee from idolatry. There's no one who is immune from this. This is a reality for people going back all the way to the Old Testament times, the people in Corinth and the people today. And so he says, when you encounter idolatry, flee. What does it mean to flee? Run the other direction. If you find yourself in a situation where you're being tempted to do the thing, whatever that thing is for you, get out of there. Mentally flee. Turn off the computer. Get out of that relationship. Get into a different spot. Flee from idolatry. But what is idolatry? They would have understood it in Corinth because there was a huge temple to Aphrodite. The people of God knew what that was because there were idols all over their culture. But what are idols now? We don't have temples where you go in and lay down coins. Well, we do. We call them arenas and stadiums. However, different subject. We have these things that are welling up within us that would pursue our hearts. uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones says this. D. Lloyd-Jones says, An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. David Powelson says, the most basic question which God poses to each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to my heart's functional trust preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. In my day-to-day life, what is it that I look to for security? What does I look to for acceptance or significance? What really is making me happy in this life? Do I look to, who do I look to for power, for success? Is it anything or anyone other than Jesus? Because when I begin to look to something else besides Jesus for my hope and my joy, that thing has become an idol and it's goal is to destroy me. They distort my thinking. They help me to see, or they make me see, that what's really good and true and beautiful is actually bad. And what's actually bad and disgusting makes me think that they're true and good and beautiful. And so I'll pursue them. Pallison adds that idols define good and evil in ways 
contrary to God's definitions. They spin out a whole false belief system establishing a center of control that is earthbound, either in objects like a lust for money or people. I, I just got to please my dad. How many people, if you heard the story, said they did all this stuff just so my dad would look at me with favor? Or I got to please myself. I'm just going to attain my personal goals. These false gods create false laws, false definitions of success, and a failure of values and stigma. Tim Keller says that idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. Why do we ever lie? Why do we fail to love or keep promises or live unselfishly? Well, generally it's because we're weak and sinful, but the specific answer is that there's something besides Jesus that we love and must have besides Jesus Christ. And sometimes our feeling helps our feelings help to reveal what these things are. When you get angry, what is it that's causing you to be angry? Is it because someone has affected your life and your agenda and your plan? Or is it because you're caring about someone who's experiencing injustice? If it's the former, then something that you love is being threatened. And that's an opportunity to say, Lord, what is it that's causing me to be angry so that I can confess it to you and put it at the foot of the cross? to recognize that there's nothing in my life that's worth more than Jesus. And because of that, then when I feel angry about something, I can even explore the reality and to say, what's the root issue that's going on in me? The word also helps us to identify what our idols are. When we read about Jesus' life, or when we read through aspects of what it means to have the character of God, we realize, wow, I don't have that character. I'm not walking in the way of Jesus. But thanks be to God, that he gave me his word to reveal that to me. Not so that I would live in condemnation, but that I would repent and rejoice and live fully unto the Lord. You see, it's an opportunity. It's not a math problem, guys. It's a math opportunity. It's a reality check for us to do an assessment of where we are in our spiritual journey. And here's the good news. There's no failing grade if you trust in Jesus. You already got an A. Imagine walking into the test with all of the answers. I'll confess to you, one time in college, I had all the answers. Confessing it to you now. I had all the answers, so I walked in with real confidence. I fill it out. Now, I was guilty for cheating. That's bad. But if you had the answers because you knew them, because all along you've been walking along and studying and learning and engaging, you go into the test and you're like, man, I'm going to kill this thing. I'm going to knock it out. I'm going I'm to get an A. That's how we ought to live our lives because Jesus has essentially made us right. He's given us a passing grade already. And so we engage in these challenges because we know that he's with us in them. So this, uh, there's a show that Silas likes to watch on TV and it's called uh, Forged in Fire. And it's a, it's a competition show where they get four guys who are from all over the country and they have to make a big knife, a big blade of some sort, some pattern knife. And so they take the, usually they give them like a weird set of metals to work with. Like, hey, here's some golf clubs and an old golf cart and you got to use some portion of that to put it into your knife. And you take the metal and you stretch it out and you put it in the heat and you pound it. And so it's this process of refining that takes place where, we, where the, uh, the metal is on an anvil and they're pounding it with a hammer and they have this big thing called Big Blue, which is a 50-ton hammer that presses down and just pounds that metal to get rid of the impurities and to shape it and to form it in the way that it's supposed to be. And if you are thinking, I'm that piece of metal, it seems like a miserable process. You're getting burned in a fire. 
You're getting pounded with metal. You're getting shaped and formed. But in the end, over the course of the contest, these guys, and sometimes gals, are able to produce amazing works of art that are also effective at cutting. So they do this test at the end of the, of the, the third round. And they want to make sure that the knife, and it's usually like big machete-looking things or swords, and they pound them on wood. They even have one, there's a big ham, and they cut it into it to see, does this knife really function as it's supposed to? And the ones who have been through, they've been designed well, and they've been forged in the fire, and they've had all their impurities knocked out, are the ones that are able to go to the next round. And there's a sense in which our life is like that. It's getting burned, it's getting pounded, it's getting crushed, it's the impurities getting gotten out of our bodies. It's a painful process, it's a humbling process, and we realize, wow, there's a whole lot more impurities in my life than I ever thought there were, but as this big hammer comes down and crushes me, I, I realize there's more and more. And it would be overwhelming and defeating, if not for the fact that we know ultimately the one who allowed himself to be crushed was Jesus. So what it says in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The reason that we come out on the other side as this beautiful work of art is because Jesus allowed himself to go through the fire and to be crushed. And friends, when you trust in him, there is no temptation. There is no test that you're going to fail because you're looking to him. Because even if you mess up, you know that Jesus has forgiven you. But because you realize the great forgiveness that he's given to you, then you say, I'm going to pass this test. I'm going to live faithfully. I'm going to be a student of the word. I'm going to be a student of Jesus. I'm going to spend time with him so that his life and love and blessing overflow into mine. So what does that look like for you this week? What is something that you can do in response to what God has said through his word? Maybe it's you need to spend some time just sitting with him and just praying. Maybe there's an area where I say when you're tempted and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's one of these different categories and you know exactly what it is. And you, I've been struggling with that for a long time. It's maybe to sit down with Jesus and to say, Lord, I have never been able to overcome this in my life. And so I'm asking you, to help me, to be with me in it. What is that thing? If one thing changed in your life as a result of hearing these words, what a blessing that would be. How would it affect your friendships, your marriage, your motivation to live a joyful life? Just one thing. What's the one thing God is calling you to do in response to his great love? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.